Welcome to the Dream Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Song of Songs 4. Let's start here and then we'll see what happens. Um, The Lord has just been stirring in me with a thousand different things this week. And so this morning I was kind of having this back and forth about what he wanted to say today. And I got here, opened up my bag, and every single book I owned was in my bag except my sermon book. So I was like, all right, Lord, I get it, Um, which I am 90% sure I packed. So anyway, um, Song of Songs chapter 4, start at verse 1, and let's just read. It says, listen, my dearest darling, you are so beautiful. You are beauty itself to me. Huge statement right there. Listen, my dearest darling, you are so beautiful. You are beauty itself. This isn't the sermon, but let me just point this out. To say you are beauty itself means if you look up in God's dictionary the word beauty or beautiful, it would be your name right beside it. He, he defines beauty as you. Hey, what's up, Jane? Um, okay. So he doesn't just think you're good. He doesn't just think you're uh, beautiful. He literally defines beauty as you. Listen, I know, we're, I know we've been in Song of Songs for six weeks, okay? Don't let that go over your head. Do you understand? Like, we, we don't serve a God. We've, we've become so accustomed to a God who is way out there and doesn't care about us. That's, that's honestly what we've become accustomed to in America. But when he starts making statements like, you are beauty itself, it requires you to get rid of the theology that he's way out there and requires you to put him right in front of you where he says, your beauty itself to me. Okay. Your eyes glisten with love like gentle doves behind your veil. What devotion I see each time I gaze upon you. You are like a sacrifice ready to be offered. When I look at you, I see you have taken my fruit and tasted my word. Your life has become clean and pure like a lamb washed and newly shorn. You now show grace and balance with truth on display. Your lips are as lovely as Rahab's scarlet ribbon, speaking mercy, speaking grace. The words of your mouth are as refreshing as an oasis. All right, let's keep going. Um... What pleasure you bring to me. I see your blushing cheeks open like the halves of a pomegranate. Um, and just real quick, too, to point out a pomegranate, I, I see your blushing cheeks open like the halves of a pomegranate. A pomegranate, um, I don't eat them, but I know them, uh, on the outside looks normal, and then when you cut it open, obviously it looks very different on the inside. Right here, he's making a statement. What pleasure you bring to me, I see your blushing cheeks open like the halves of a pomegranate. That's intimacy talk. I don't just see the outside. I see the parts of you that you have to cut open to see. Okay? Showing through your veil of tender meekness, when I look at you, I see your inner strength so stately and strong. You are secure as David's fortress. Your virtues and grace cause a thousand famous soldiers to surrender to your beauty. Your pure faith and love rest over your heart as you nurture those who are yet infants. Now, here's here's where we're going to get into some good stuff. Okay. 
Listen to what she says. Now remember, just to give you a quick review, uh, where Song of Songs 2, 3, and 4 have us is he comes to her to bring her revival, to be refreshed. That's what she asked for. He comes to her and says, the way I'm going to refresh you is I'm going to take you to my mountain. She says no because he conceals the fact that he's actually going to carry her up the mountain. So when he comes with an invitation to go up his mountain, her thought is, is she's going to have to work to get to his mountain. Man, I'm, I, man. Okay, this is what happens when I don't have my notebook. Here we go. It's just wild and free. All right, she, she thinks when he says we're going to climb up the mountain, she thinks she's going to get there by her works. Right? So she says, there's no way I can do that. He comes back around after she's tossing and turning, asking herself, why in the world did I say no to him? She finds him and says, I'll never let you go again. And then he unveils the fact that he's actually got, in the Hebrew, a couch for her to ride up the mountain with him on. Right? There's no way I can get there by works. And he says, that's great. You couldn't work to get there anyway. I'm actually going to carry you. Okay, so this is, where she, this is where we are. So uh, he comes to her, he describes once again, he reinforces her identity by saying, your beauty itself, what pleasure you bring to me, your inner strength so stately. But what we're about to find is she is about to be re-identified. Okay, up till this point, she's been known as lover, by the way, you are the Shulamite. You are the she in the story, okay? So up till this point, she's only been known as lover or as beauty or as darling or as um, uh, beloved. But listen to what changes right here, okay? Verse 6, I've made up my mind until the darkness disappears and the day the dawn has fully come. In spite of the shadows and fears, I will go to the mountaintop with you. Okay? Go back to 317. I'm not going to do this. You can do this later. Go back to 317. That's the exact language she uses before she says no. This time she comes back around and says, despite all the shadows and fear, I'm going with you. To the mountain of suffering love, the hill of burning incense, yes, I will be your bride. Remember that. And then he responds, and then we're going to stop after this section. He responds, Every part of you is so beautiful, my darling. Perfect is your beauty without flaw within. Now you are ready to be my bride. Re-identify. This is the first time in all of Song of Songs she is identified as bride. Now you're ready to be my bride, to come with me as we climb the highest peaks together. Come with me through the archway of trust. We will look down from the crest of glistening mounts and from the summit of our sublime sanctuary. Together we will wage war in the lion's den and the leopard's lair as they watch nightly for their prey. For you reach into my heart with one flash of your eyes. I am undone by your love. My beloved, listen to what he says, my beloved, my equal, my bride. You leave me breathless. I am overcome by merely a glance from your worshiping eyes. For you have stolen my heart. 
I'm held hostage by your love, by the grace of righteousness shining upon you. How satisfying to me, my equal, my bride. Your love is my finest wine, intoxicating and thrilling. And your sweet perfume praises so exotic, so pleasing. Your loving words are like the honeycomb to me. Your tongue releases milk and honey, for I find the promised land flowing within you. The fragrance of your worshiping love surrounds me, excuse me, surrounds you with scented robes of white. Let me just finish this out. My darling, my bride, my private paradise fastened to my heart. A secret spring are you that no one else can have. This is, this is huge right here, okay? Y'all with me? I know we've, we don't read 15 verses in church a lot, but forgive me. Um, my darling, my bride, my private paradise fastened to my heart. A secret spring are you that no one else can have. This is the, this is the message today. Okay, that no one else can have. My bubbling fountain hidden from public view. What a partner, perfect partner to me that I have in you. Your inward life is now sprouting, bringing forth fruit. What a beautiful paradise unfolds within you. I'm going to stop right there. All right, y'all with me? She gets re-identified as bride And then he starts using language that you can only use toward a bride, like my equal. Hello. How many of you have, this sermon, today's going to get me in a lot of trouble. Um, How many of you, this is trouble I want to get in. How many of you have a hard time, you don't have to raise your hand, have a hard time seeing Jesus here and you not here but right here with him. Co-heirs. It's easy for me to see Jesus way up there and me, just an old sinner, way down here, when in all actuality, his death didn't buy a cheap version of a better identity. Right? He didn't die so that you could call yourself, I'm just a sinner, but at least I'm saved by grace. You know what I mean? I am not a sinner, and neither are you. (laughs) Right? If you're a sinner, then you're not his. You were a sinner saved by grace for .00 seconds, 0002 seconds. And then after that, you were son or daughter. Son or daughter is not sinner. It's son or daughter. Okay? So he looks at you and calls you his equal. So when Jesus, when God looks at Jesus and he looks at you, he loves Jesus, and he loves you with the same love. In fact, he sees Jesus, and he sees you with the same eyes in the same way. That's why Jesus said, all who believe in me will do the works I do and greater works. Why? Because they're going to be just like me. If I could do it, they can do it. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that lives in me. So the same power that called Lazarus out of a tomb four days after his body had decayed is the same power that calls me to come out of my tomb and then empowers me to call other people out of their tombs. Don't make that spiritual. So he says, you are my bride, 
Now you are ready to be my bride. Why is she ready? Because she has said, despite all the shadows of fear that surround me, I'll go with you. And he says, well, now that you've made that decision, let me rename you. You were lover. Now you're bride. So here's the sermon today. And I, I tried my best to not make this cliche. I think it's just going to come out cliche. So there is a difference in dating Jesus and marrying Jesus. Okay? There's a huge difference in dating Jesus and marrying Jesus. 99.99, and I say this in love, but hey, we're brothers and sisters. 99.9999999% of Americans date Jesus. That are Christians. Date Jesus. And a handful are bride. How do I know this? Because this is how we make decisions in our life. Number one, what's best for me? Number two, what's second best for me? And way, 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 way down the line, whatever we got left over, Lord, it's yours. Right? That's, this is what we do. Giving is 17 bucks a person in America. 17 bucks. I promise you people make more than $170 a month. You know what I mean, right? Or else Donald Trump would have been gone a long time ago, okay? So I promise you, so, but that, that's just how we are. Whatever I got left over, let me, let me bless y'all with. And the Lord's not looking for you to bless him. The Lord's looking for you to be his bride. And the tithe is nothing more than a manifestation of who you are, which is why in the New Testament, when they had been re-identified as bride, they were given everything. Because they're saying, the one that I'm joined to owns the cattle of a thousand hills. What I got means nothing. Right? And, and I know I talk about giving, but that's just like, you, you go, go down to praying for people. Why don't we pray for people? Because we don't believe we have the power to pray for people that anything's going to happen. And so we build theologies around the fact that God really doesn't want to touch his people anymore when in all actuality, it's just something in us that says we don't want to step out in the faith that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is actually living in us. Francis Chan did a talk recently, and I cannot get over it. Um, and I don't, I don't know a lot about Francis Chan. I think he's a cool guy. I've heard like three messages from him. But he did a talk recently about how he went to Myanmar. Does anybody know where that is? Is that in Asia? Indonesia? South Asia? Great. I have no idea. So he goes, and while he's there, the Lord tells him to start praying for people. Now, this is not somebody who's grown up in a Pentecostal church that's, you know, to lay hands on people their, his whole life. He's been somebody that has not believed in this until recently, okay? And he said within a, I think it was 24-hour span, but within a certain span, every single person that he prayed for was instantly healed. Every one of them. In fact, I believe he said two kids, one boy and one girl, he prayed for them. They were blind, and their eyes popped open. They saw for the first time. And he, he said it was effortless. I mean, like, the Lord would download something, pray for people, boom. And so I start thinking about that. And the thing that people have an issue with in America is why doesn't that happen more frequently? That's the thing people have issue with. And I'm going to give you an answer. It's because the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is accessible to his bride, not to his acquaintance. And the only Christianity 
that is known in other countries other than America is just Christianity. In America, we got 750 Christianities. Everywhere else, they have one, right? So they don't sit around and wonder, well, I wonder what, I wonder what Jesus really, really meant by that. Raise the dead? I, I don't know about that. They're, you know what they're doing? They're saying, raise the dead? Sweet. Somebody died last week. So probably go pray for them. You know what I'm saying? Are y'all with me? I know this is a lot. It shouldn't be a lot, but this, the, here, here we are, okay? So he goes to her, and he says, now you are ready to be my bride, and then start saying things like, with one flash of your eyes, I'm undone by your love. With one flash, when you walk into the room, with one flash of your eyes toward him, he's completely undone. It's like when me and my wife got married. The doors opened, and as soon as my eyes locked hers, it was hard to stand up. I was undone, right? Every time you step into a moment of devotion or intimacy or in your car and you start playing worship or whatever, every time your eyes are fixed on him with one flash, he's undone. He's your, belo- he's your bridegroom, so the same way that we react when our bride comes walking down the aisle is the way he reacts every day you come walking down the aisle and your eyes meet. And it never gets old. Okay? Revival in the church is not, right? It's like for five days we're up, for five years we're down. And then five more days we're up. No, revival is glory to glory to glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. Why? Because he never stops being undone by our eyes. The only thing that changes is that we stop looking at him. Right? He'll start moving in a service and all of a sudden we'll become comfortable with all the fruit that his presence brings and we'll replace his presence with the fruit that his presence brings. Here's the issue. You can only eat on fruit for so long and it's gone. And when it's gone, we begin to say things like, man, we were burning hot a year ago, and here we are again. Right? I love the fruit of his presence, but I'll take his presence 100% of the time over any fruit. Okay. All right. Go to Romans 6. Go to Romans 6. I don't know if you you caught this. I'm not um, ADD or whatever it is. Uh, I've been taking sections of Song of Songs and connecting them to other parts of the Bible on purpose. It's not because I'm crazy. Um, somebody asked me that this week, like, man, you've been preaching pretty much on the whole Bible. I'm like, yeah. Song of Songs is the base of your whole Bible. Um, that's not me. That's what all the early church fathers believed. And so um, I'll take what they believe. So I'll have what they had. Uh, Romans 6 and... Uh, uh, j- just just listen to this stuff, okay? I've got I got so much, but here here's the basis of today. When he re-identifies you, you spend the rest of your life making sure you never go back. Okay? When he re when he renames you to live in what you used to be named is delusion. It doesn't exist. Okay? So when he renames you you have the opportunity to step into a rebirthing 
that you live in a completely different and glorious way than you ever lived and never turn back, okay? So, uh, Romans 6 says this, uh, so what do we do then? I'm just going to read this, so just follow with me. So what do we do? Do we persist in sin so that God's kindness and grace will increase? We should preach a lot of messages on that verse right there. Do we should we just sin because God's grace? No, right? No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Should we just relate to the culture because there's grace? No. Okay. Verse 2. Sometimes I just have to. It feels good. What a terrible thought. We have died to sin once and for all as a dead man passes away from this life. So how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer? Let me point this out. That word sin right there, and this is where the language barrier comes in. That word sin right there is not simply the bad things you do. That word sin is a word that means anything that comes from the self-nature. That's straight out of the lexicon, okay? So the word sin is anything that is produced from my flesh is sin. So let me put it like this. Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, correct? Okay, okay. What did they do? They took a bite of a fruit. Amen. <laughs> right? It's all good. We're family. It's all good. Um, so what do they do? They took a bite of a pea, uh, they took a bite of fruit. Is that that bad? Right? They they didn't go murder anybody. They they took a bite of a fruit. What was the sin? It was it was disobedience. Right? Selfishness. It was disobedience. So disobedience you could be disobedient and do a lot of good things, but you're still disobedient. You understand that? Like, so when we read sin, our minds immediately go to lying and stealing and cheating. All that stuff is sin, to be clear. But all that stuff is sin because it originates in your flesh. So anything that originates in your flesh. So if the Lord tells Jonah, I want you to go here, and Jonah says, no, thank you. He climbs, he gets into the water, gets into the belly of a well, and is spit up on the beach. He is in sin. Why? Because he said no to the call of God on his life, which put him in a place of disobedience. Why was he disobedient? Because his flesh said, I don't want to go there because I know what's waiting for me, persecution. And boy, was he wrong. Right? But... Anything, and this is why I want to fix this, is because when we read through, especially the book of Romans, we'll have this idea that when it says we have died to sin, we'll think that means we've died to looking at stuff on the computer, we've died to cutting people off, and it does. But it, we've died to that stuff because we've died to Adam, our flesh. Okay? So, uh, how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer or have you forgotten that all of us who were immersed into union with Jesus, the anointed one, were immersed into union with his death? Sharing in his death by our baptism means we were co-buried and entombed with him so that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. 
So we have been co-resurrected with him so that we could be empowered to walk in the freshness of new life. For since we are permanently grafted into him, I love that phrase right there, permanently grafted into him to experience a death like his, then we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of our sin nature within us so that we would not continue to live a moment longer submitted to that power. The other way you could say that is so that the body of sin might be annulled or put out of business. Dr. Brian Simmons puts a footnote right here. Let me just read this. To beg God for victory over sin is a refusal to understand that we've actually already died to sin. Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away, take it away, take it away. He's saying, take what away? What are you talking about? Right? I, I know this messes with people. Like, we, we pray, God, give me victory over this temptation. Victory over this temptation. And he says, I have. You can you say yes or no. It's your choice. Right? Right? Nobody, nobody, nobody man, how, how far do we go? Nobody, nobody tells you to look at stuff on the computer. You choose to. The devil didn't make you. And the Lord definitely didn't make you. You did. So I hear freedom in that, not condemnation, because if you can choose to look, you can also choose to not look. What's the difference? It's when that whisper comes, hey, you know what, man, you need this. It's been a rough week. You respond by saying, hey, I don't know who that is. It ain't me. Okay. I knew that would go over real good. All right. Obviously, a dead person is incapable of sinning. I, listen, just Paul, my, my, my dude. Obviously, a dead person is incapable of sinning. And if we were co-crucified with the anointed one, we know that we will also share in the fullness of his life. And we know that since the anointed one has been raised from the dead to die no more, his resurrection life has vanquished death for its power over him is finished. For by his sacrifice, he died to sin's power once and for all, but he now lives continuously for the Father's pleasure. So let it be the same way with you. Since you are now joined with him, bride, you must continually view yourself as dead and unresponsive to sin's appeal while daily living for God's pleasure in union with Jesus, the anointed one. Okay, one more, one more little section. Sin is a dethroned monarch. So you must no longer give it an opportunity to rule over your life, controlling how you live and compelling you to obey its desires and cravings. Then refuse to answer its call to surrender your body as a tool for wickedness. Instead, 
passionately answer God's call to keep yielding your body to him as one who has now experienced resurrection life. You live now for his pleasure, ready to be used for his noble purpose. Here's another way that could be translated. For the members of your body will be used as weapons for the righteousness of God. Remember this, this last verse. Sin, man, listen to this right here. Sin will not conquer you, for God already has. You are not governed by law, but governed by the reign of the grace of God. What does that got to do with Song of Songs 3? Uh, and I'm, I'm praying as hard as I can of whether or not we should go into Genesis 2, but I don't know if we are. Um, what does this got to do? She, she gets renamed Bride, okay? You get renamed Bride. The rest of her life, she's got a choice to make. Is she going to live as what she is now named Bride, or is she going to walk back to the identity that was unsure if she wanted to climb the mountain of complete and total victory and reign with the bridegroom. And so all of our lives, for whatever reason, mostly because of the culture we live in, our lives are a constant back and forth. And back, you'll be burning hot one day, the next day you'll be, you'll be um, fizzled out. Burning hot one day, fizzled out. Burning hot one day, fizzled out. And what he wants to do, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is before he joins his body together, we have to be convinced of who we are. And in order to be convinced of who we are, we really have to be convinced of who he is. Okay? So for her to be called bride requires two things. One, for her to be convinced that she is finally ready to be the bride. And number two, to be fully convinced that no matter what he calls her to, he can trust that it's good. She can trust that it's good. Okay? So in Romans 6, we get this picture of you have an Adam nature and you have a Jesus nature. The Jesus nature, I said this last week, will always offend the Adam nature because they're working against each other. The Adam nature is trying to pull you back into sin. The Jesus nature is trying to pull you into a life where sin is irrelevant. So the one that's trying to make sin irrelevant to you will always offend the one that's trying to make sin very relevant to you. Okay? So Paul says you've got two options you can continue to go back to something that's actually been put to death, or you can live for his pleasure. Jesus came to live as us and die as us so that we could live as him, right? All agree. All right. So we have to start asking ourselves the question, if we've been joined with him, and I need your attention just for this part, well, really for the whole thing, but just it, if, if we've joined with him, think, just think, okay? My, my, my goal in my life is just to get Americans to think. So think for a second. If you've been joined with him, you are one with him. As he is, so are you. One. 
what is Jesus making his decisions right now, making his decisions off of on a daily basis? How, how does Jesus, how is Jesus living his life? We know that, how did Jesus live his life on earth? Did he live his life saying, whatever I got left, you can have? No. He lived his life saying, one thing I desire, and this shall I seek the rest of my life, to gaze upon your face and to be in your house forever. That was his life. Okay? So here's what we have to ask ourselves. If that's his life, how does my life look compared to how his life looks, and if there is a drastic difference in how we operate, we are not joined. Do y'all hear that? Okay, so if I'm making decisions based off of what's best for me, I am not joined with the one who's making decisions based off how much pleasure does this bring him. That's what Paul says. He says, Jesus now currently, right now, lives continuously for the Father's pleasure. So let it be like that with you, since you're joined with him and dead and unresponsive to sin, we should live daily for God's pleasure. Why? Because we're in union with Jesus. All right, I wasn't going to do this, but here we go. Let me, let me ask y'all this. Uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 10 says this, or 9, excuse me, Hebrews 9 says this. The Lord uh, mentioned this to me yesterday I just while we're here. It says, every, actually, nope. Yeah, let me read this in Passion. Okay. Every human being is appointed to die once. Every human being is appointed to die once and then face God's judgment. But when we die, we will be face to face with Christ, the one who experienced death once and for all to bear the sins of many. And now those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring us the fullness of salvation. Every human being is appointed to die once. <clears throat> let, let, let me just challenge y'all. Do not make that about when you take your last breath. Well, Josh, I just, I just, I just don't know about that. <clears throat> Sharing in his death by our baptism means we were co-buried and in tune with him so that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. I've died. And you've died. It's appointed, it's appointed unto man once to die. It's a lie to say that we have eternal life and then say that he puts something in here that's all about us dying. Which is it? You got eternal life or are you waiting for death? I'm not waiting for death. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And Matt, let, me, let me just, Matthew, Matthew 7 says this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. 
On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Do you know that word knew? Uh, let me think about the best way to say this because I know there's kids probably watching this online. That word knew does not mean I knew Jesus. That word knew refers to what happens on your wedding night. Let's say it like that. That, that, that is the word out of the lexicon. I could be straight up with you and just say it, but I'm not going to. I'll censor it. All right? That word knew is not, hey, man, I know you. It's, no, like, I know you. Okay? So he, what is he saying? He's saying, there's going to be a large group of people who say, Lord, we did this in your name. We did this in your name. We grew churches in your name. We had ministries in your name. We did worship in your name. We had small groups in your name. And he's going to say, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Oh, that's great. I never knew you. His primary concern is not what you do. Sure, I will. Yeah, sure. I sure will. Perfect. It's not like the churches I grew up in, you know. Say it again. I'm like, please don't. I'm starving. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, that's why I don't wear my Apple Watch anymore. One, one day it went off a thousand times. Um, I get Siri saved. Um, right? What is, the book of, right? what is the book of Song of Songs about? It's not calling somebody into a great ministry. It's calling somebody into a knowing, okay? That's why he didn't call the church the ministry of Jesus. He called the church the bride of Jesus. Why? Because he, I mean, the ministry is great. He's really concerned about you being his bride. And then the more you are settled in your bridal identity, it will then unlock something within you to carry his word to other people. But until you are settled, you don't need to be doing ministry. I know that goes against a lot of stuff, but I'm telling you, I don't want somebody to prophesy or to pray for me or to cast out demons in me unless they know who they are. Let me say it like this. I don't want to be doing that stuff unless I know who I am. Right? So what he's doing is he's calling us into the place where the Song of Songs Shulamite woman was, where we are re-identified as bride before, if I could ever keep this Bible open, it would be awesome, um, where he re-identifies us as the bride and then releases us to be the bride. But this is what, this is what the message is today, and this is where we've got to get as a culture, Okay. The culture is not heading south. The world is not heading south. Things are getting good. If, if Peter can announce after 120 are baptized in the Holy Spirit, not 1,000, 120. If Peter can step out and say, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied when he said, in the last days, which we've been in since the upper room, by the way, in the last days, I will pour out my flesh on all people. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay? After 120 are baptized in the Holy Spirit, Peter has the audacity to say, this is what the prophet Joel was talking about. 
if Peter can say that about 120, I feel complete grace to say that he is unlocking a level of intimacy for his people today that the glory that he unveils in this latter house will be so much more glorious than that of the former house. That no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has comprehended is a continual prophetic word. So we're going to see things the last generation didn't see, and the next generation is going to see things we didn't see. That's how it needs to operate. It does not need to be, man, they saw angels and seraphim and all that stuff. I wish we could see that. Because that's what we say a lot. The first great awakening, second great awakenings, John G. Lake, all these other awesome ministries. Man, they saw this, 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 and this. I want to see that. And the Lord's saying, I don't want to show you that. I want to show you more. But what's it going to take? It's going to take us ceasing. I want to say this right. It's going to take us making the crazy decision that we're going to transition from dating him to marrying him. When I, most people who get married, this isn't my story necessarily, but for the most part, it's not a bad thing, it's just, you know, life. Uh, most people have many, and I don't mean this in an intimate way either, just most people have many relationships or lovers before they get married. That's just life, you know what I mean? You just, in high school, you just date people, you know, whatever. But there's only one that you're joined to, right? When you're dating, nobody changes their name. Nobody really has to give up anything. You're still living separate houses. You're still, um, you know, have separate bank accounts. It, it's just, all you're doing is just entertaining each other. But when you get married, everything about your old life dies, the bride is renamed, and so now, for me and Jordan, Jordan's last name is Funderburg before we got married. So it, before, when we were dating, it was, here's Funderburg and here's Brown. But after we got married, it's just, here's Browns, right? So she changed her name. Our bank accounts join. We live in the same house. And then once we got joined, we began to reproduce what? A brown, Okay, so evangelism, evangelism is you being convinced of who you are to the point that your name gets changed, bride, and once your name is changed, you get so joined to him that it begins to reproduce brides. It begins to reproduce Christs. Right? So, so evangelism, I don't have to stand on a corner with a megaphone and say, repent or die. To reach people. You know what I have to do? Get in such a secret place with him and a rhythm in the secret place with him that my secret place with him and my intimacy with him actually begins to rebirth something. Why does he tell Nicodemus, you must be born again? What, what happens when a baby is born? They're given a name. Right? So he's telling him, is that, that's Nicodemus, I'm saying that right, right? Okay, I'm, I've read through so much Bible today that it's not even funny, I'm mixing up stories. So, he says, you must be born again. Why? Because you cannot be re-identified as long as you're still this person. So you are going to have to climb back, spiritually, climb back in your mother's womb and be born again, fresh, new. 
And once you're born again, it's going to unlock your new life, your new name. Okay? Jacob, let me say this. Jacob, y'all still with me? I'm almost done. Uh, Again, this is just what happens when I don't have notes in front of me. All good. So Jacob is at Bethel. He has an encounter with the Lord where he's wrestling with the Lord. Um, In fact, this is in Genesis. I had it in my notes, but I think it's Genesis 32. And I'm not going to read this. Uh, but let me make sure I'm pointing you in the right direction so that you can go back and, um, and study this. So, Genesis 32, yes, yes. Um, excuse me, he is not at Bethel. But uh, at Bethel is when he sees the ladder and the angels are ascending and descending and all that stuff. But he has a wrestling match right before he's going to meet Esau. Now, Esau is his brother that he stole the birthright from. Jacob is a crook. You know what I mean? Like, Jacob is a messed up dude. So he's running. He lives his life. He gets his wives. He has his children. And he's on his way back, and he gets word Esau is coming to meet him, the brother he stole the birthright from. He is paralyzed, the Bible says in Hebrew. He is paralyzed in fear. That night, he sends everybody away, and he's alone. And as he's alone, he begins to wrestle, the Bible says, with a man. And as he wrestles, he's winning the wrestling match. So the man reaches out, hits his thigh. He begins to walk with a limp. And this is what it says. Let me, let me just, it says, excuse you. Um, out of nowhere, a man appeared, wrestled with him until daybreak. The man saw he was not winning the match. He struck Jacob's hip and knocked it out of joint, leaving it wrenched. Uh, As he continued to wrestle with him, eventually the man said to him, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob refused. No, I will not let go until you bless me. Now remember, he's about to face Esau. He is terrified for his life, thinking Esau is about to kill him. Okay? So he's wrestling, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. In other words, I ain't letting go until you give me some protection. Okay? And then the man says, what's your name? Jacob, he replied, not anymore. The man said, your new name is Israel, for you have struggled with God and people, and you have overcome. So he he renames him Israel. Why is that huge? Okay, Because the land that was eventually going to be named Israel was first named Canaan. Who was Canaan? Canaan was the son of Ham, Noah's son. When they get off the ark, Noah plants a vineyard. He gets drunk. That's, that's where a lot of pastors insert a joke right there about joking, or drinking. I'm not doing that. So uh, you know, when, you're, when you're around your family, you know. Um, so he plants a vineyard. He gets drunk. He's laying in his tent, and Ham comes in, and the Bible says he does something sexual Um, with his father his father wakes up realizes what has happened to him what has been done to him and uh and then he says cursed be canaan ham's son okay so the land of canaan was a cursed land okay then a father is raised up abram is renamed abraham Y'all with me? And then is promised the land of Canaan as his inheritance. 
He has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. The Lord shows up to a crook and says, you're no longer a crook. I'm renaming you Israel because you've wrestled with God, and you've wrestled with man, and you've overcome. Before a land could be re-identified, a man had to be re-identified. That, that is a, I, if, I, know, I know it's long. I know it's getting long. That's huge. Before a land could be re-identified and brought out of its curse, a man had to be re-identified and brought out of his curse. And do you know what Jacob does? Continues to fear. To the point where in Genesis 35, the Lord has to show back up and say, Jacob, your name is not Jacob, it's Israel. So three chapters later, the Lord shows up and has to rename him again. Why? Because even though he renamed him Israel, Jacob continued to operate as Jacob. So what the Lord is looking for is a group of people who don't simply get re-identified because that's what we've made salvation. Repeat a prayer. And then, and then we continue to live our lives and we continue to do the stuff we were doing before and we continue to show up to church at Easter and Christmas and we continue to give whatever we got left and we continue to show up just when we feel like it and we continue to party and we continue to do all this stuff. And the reason is, is because we got re-identified but we never lived in who we are which is no longer Jacob. You know what I mean? Repeating a prayer is great, but all repeating a prayer does is open up the pathway for you to be renamed. But once you get renamed, you have a choice to make. I'm either going to live as who I was or I'm going to live as who I am. The problem is, is who you were is now dead. So you living in that person is actually you not living at all because that person is a delusion. It doesn't exist. Right? So the enemy's goal for your life is not to get you to fall into sin. The enemy's goal for your life is for you to be nameless. Because if he can get you to be nameless, sin will come as a consequence of it. Why? Because it all comes from yourself. Sin is self-originated. So if you're living in Christ, sin isn't an issue. Why? Because everything flowing from your life is from Christ. But the moment you step back into this identity, everything flowing from your life is by definition sin because it flows from this life. So the reason that Romans 8 exists where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and he goes through and talks about how all creation stand on tiptoe waiting for the manifestation of sons and daughters of God and how the guilty verdict has been removed from you and now you are acquitted and all that stuff. The reason Paul is talking about that is not because we work ourselves into perfection. We've been renamed as perfect. So he goes to the bride. Every part of you is beautiful. Song of Songs 4. I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, who do we want to play keys? Sophia? Yeah, I think it's ready right now. <clears throat> I think that's funny. We can just ask them. Who's, who's got keys today? Daniel, you're next week. So. <laughs> oh, man. He thinks I'm joking. He thinks I'm joking. Um, no. <laughs> oh, man. Um, if you're watching this, welcome. Um, perfect is your beauty without flaw. 
now you are ready to be my bride. Come with me as we climb the highest peaks together and we go through the archway of trust. I, um, I've been thinking a lot lately about, um, let me say it like this. It, it's amazing how dead and dry the culture around us has become. I mean, it really is. And, and here's, why, here's how I know this. It's because um, we went to, and Mr. Bragg's going to share this next week, but I didn't realize this until he talked to me Friday. Uh, last month, was it last month or this month? This month, right? Yeah, this month. Um, we went to Norway, South Carolina, not, you know, Norway. And um, we go there, and we just do a worship night. I mean, it wasn't anything you know, huge, crazy, anything like that. Um, we do a worship night, and that city is is in the middle of being renewed right now. And when I tell you, you can ask any of these guys who have been there, when I tell you that that city was dead, I mean, it was dead. I mean, dead. You guys, obviously, uh, yeah, so y'all know. Um, you guys are here. Um, and talking with Mr. Bragg Friday, um, and just hearing the stories of, of churches, Methodist churches and Baptist churches and stuff like that that are just like, just had no idea life like this existed. And, uh, and so I'm in the car with Veda after I hang up the phone and uh, we're going to an adventure and I'm just thinking that I'm just like, Lord, how often do we take this as just normal because we've been doing this for two years, when what we're in the middle of is not normal. I don't need a thousand people for me to be able to say we're changing the world. I need two. In fact, if I could have one person other than myself, I don't even know if I need another person, but if I could have one or two or three or a handful of people other than myself to be convinced of who they are, that's all we need. Noah repopulated the globe with eight people, seven other than him. Seven people. If Noah and his ark was a church, we'd call him a failure in America. Seven people. Why didn't you go around telling people, hey, this storm's coming. You don't even have to agree with me. Just jump on the boat. Just jump on the boat. Just jump on the boat. Say thousands. Why? Why, Why didn't he do that? Because the Lord wasn't looking for the masses. He was looking for a handful to be convinced that they are the righteousness of God because that handful could actually repopulate the entire globe. And I wonder today if we could turn our attention from how many people we can reach to how close we can get to his feet. I wonder how many people we would actually reach. Because the world is not looking for a show. The world's looking for some people that look like Jesus, and they aren't finding them. You know what I mean? People aren't running away from the church. People are running away from the show. They're not running away from the church. They came to the church to find Jesus and didn't find him. In fact, I believe in a lot of ways there's more of a godly expression outside of the church than there is in the church. 
Why are people running to doctors? Because we ain't healing the sick. So the Lord's saying, you know what? If they ain't going to heal the sick, then we'll bless some doctors. You you hear what I'm saying? People people aren't coming into the church because they want a big show. Those same people are sitting on their front porch taking videos of the sunset saying, man, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Why? Because that is a more authentic expression of who God is than when they come in the doors of his own house. And I'm telling you today, we have got to fix this. As long as I'm just entertaining him or dating him, this place will not look any different than the other 12 churches within eyeshot of that front porch right out there. I can stand on that front porch and point to you at about 10 churches around here. There's churches on every corner. Why? Because each one thinks they can provide a better show than the other. That's, I mean, that's really what church has become. It is. That's not a shot. It's reality. You know what I mean? Like, well, we've got more money, so we can have fog. They don't have fog. Come to our church. Right? We can pay world-class musicians. We don't care if they're saved or not. They're just world-class musicians. Just get them in here. We'll figure it out later. You know what I mean? So that's what we do because we think the show is going to attract people. And let me tell you what's going to attract people. Looking like Jesus. Jesus did not need the culture to draw people. You know what drew people? Lazarus, come out. You know what I mean? Jesus did not need the Pharisees to save the whole country. He didn't need them. They were there. They worked against him. Right? And so when you start offering hope, let me tell you firsthand, you start offering hope and start looking a little bit like Jesus, and the Pharisees will show themselves very quickly. They will. They don't like it. People in Colombia fight tooth and nail when you start talking about freedom. Because slavery is very comfortable. Oh, man. Israelites are out in the wilderness, and they're saying, Moses, why did you bring us here? At least we had food. What? They were beaten on a daily basis as slaves, and they get in the wilderness that stands in between everything that was promised to their ancestors and slavery and right on the cusp of the promised land because they get a little hungry, they start saying, man, At least we had food back in Egypt. And an entire generation dies because they refuse to honor the fact that if they could push past the initial doubt of he brought me into the wilderness and he's going to forget about me because he's actually not that good, they would begin to see manna rise up from the ground. Do you understand? Joshua and Caleb are the only two out of millions that say the Lord parted the Red Sea, some giants are nothing for him. And Joshua and Caleb led the charge after that generation dies and another generation rises up. And I'm telling you today, that was two out of millions and millions and millions of people. Was that a successful ministry? We've got to make that decision. You know what I'm saying? We've got to make the decision. Do we want to be part of the two that's actually going to taste the fruit of the land, or do we want to be part of the millions that are going to die out in the wilderness because they'd rather be back in slavery? 
And this is where we are in our city. We're on the cusp of this, and we're tasting manna right now. And because they're not tasting manna in doubt, they're saying, that can't be it. The Lord doesn't want to give us manna anymore. What they're really saying is, if that's manna, what do we got to do to get it? They're not looking for people to relate to them. They're looking for people to relate to him. Hmm. So if we could ever be convinced of who we are, he's going to begin to join us with people who are not convinced of who they are, and it's actually going to begin to repopulate the globe with righteousness. The first flood killed off unrighteousness and left righteousness. The second flood, Habakkuk says, which is the intimate knowledge of the glory of the Lord that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, this time is not killing the unrighteous. It's inviting them to be co-resurrected with Christ into righteousness. If I knew y'all would be cool with it, we'd just keep going till four, but that's okay. I know y'all ain't. One of these days we will. So uh, I, I do want to pray, though, and, uh, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something a little unique. Um, there are a lot of people in this room, and it's okay. It's okay. I, I, I tell people all the time, and people think I'm you know, a heretic for this or whatever, whatever uh, if I am cool. But uh, that I don't know. I was saved when I was a kid. I repeated the prayer when I was a kid. I don't know if what I had before about five years ago, I can even legally call salvation anymore. Because about five years ago, he invited me into a daily, I spent five hours a day, five hours a day in the presence of the Lord and have to this day five years now and every day just encountering things and encountering things and encountering things and hearing whispers and whispers and whispers. And before, I never even touched my Bible. I didn't care. I didn't care about the secret place. You know what I mean? The most reading I did was scrolling through Instagram and seeing somebody post a Bible verse. That's, the, that's about what I got. And I'm telling you, I, I legally, was I saved? Was I probably going to heaven? Yeah, I probably was going to heaven. But I don't know if I can legally even call that salvation compared to what I got now. Was it? Probably. But I'm telling you, this is my story because I've reached a level. This isn't, it's just reality. All of us have access. It's not me. All of us have access to this. But some of us in the room have reached a level of depth and intimacy with him where we are totally okay saying, if it takes my life, I'm never going back. I've seen way too much to go back now. Right? But there's other people in the room who are kind of on that entry point. You're at the point where you're like, you've been, you've been dating Jesus. You've been entertaining the aspect of maybe marrying this person one day. And he's asking you the question, will you marry me? I just, I hear that in the spirit. I've heard it all week. He's asked, will you marry me? I don't want to date anymore. There's things in intimacy that you do not have access to while you're dating. Hello. Hello. But when you get married, no rules, <laughs> right? Right? There's things you can't do while you're dating somebody. But when you get married, you can do all those things. 
There's stuff in intimacy with the Lord that he has withheld because you haven't said yes yet. And he wants to. He just wants you to say yes first. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more information, visit dreamcolumbia.com.